Jude, verses 13 through 15. And if you remember the story that I started with of all of those sheep, you know, there's coyotes out there, there's wolves, there's darkness, thick darkness. But the sheep, where are they looking? They're looking toward the shepherd. And uh, when we read this, and we're going to be showing in the context of the whole book, this is the way we ought to be looking continually. Here is a description of the darkness that has even crept into the church. It's, it's a thick darkness that surrounded them. He says of these humanists, These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Amen. Father God, we come to you rejoicing that even in the midst of the darkness that these verses are singing, that you provide light. And we want to look to the shepherd, have full faith, have full confidence, have full hope that uh, if you are for us, who can be against us? And so I pray that you would encourage this, your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the passage we read may seem like a, a dark and discouraging description of the church, and it certainly is sobering, especially when you realize that it is an incredibly accurate description of much of what is going on in the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and in the Protestant Church. Uh, personally, though, I find it uh, a wonderful passage, a very encouraging passage, because to me it shows that humanism has no future, absolutely no future. Their whole worldview is self-destructive. Now, they are dangerous, and we do need to take them seriously, but we need not fear them. And because this is Pro-Life Sunday, uh, and I want to bring up some um, uh, issues related uh, to abortion, just uh, step back a little bit and give a little bit of perspective. What's going on in our nation? What's going on in the church? I think most of you have... Uh, seen statistics, polls that have been taken that are interpreted in wildly different ways. Depending on how the poll is worded, some of the polls make it look like we're a very pro-life nation, and other polls make it look like we're a very pro-abortion uh, nation. Uh, for example, uh, the Pew Forum was very encouraged at how pro-life our nation was. It said, most Americans, 73%, believe that abortion is morally wrong in nearly all, 24%, or in some, 49%, circumstances. I think, boy, that's a pretty optimistic reading of that. Uh, the same poll indicated that only 20%, here's a different way of reading it, only 20% of the population said that Abortion should be illegal in nearly all circumstances. And even that 20% is really a fudge factor because 
90% of all people who have been diagnosed as having Down syndrome babies abort their babies. That means even the 20%, when push comes to shove, really is not consistent on their own view of abortion. Or maybe they think that Down syndrome is why we need to put the word nearly all uh, uh, cases uh, into there. But there was one poll uh, that... um, I thought was very, very accurate. Some of the polls, I think, are just scams. They're deliberately worded ambiguously, and it's hard to know. Is is this a true statistic? Is it not? Because people can be confused by the poll depending upon how it's worded. But this poll was jointly done by ABC News and BeliefNet, BeliefNet being a a more Christian organization. Well, sort of. Uh, the, the, The poll asked... If the participant would agree that abortion should be legal in all cases, legal in most cases, legal in some cases, and illegal in all cases. Now, I thought that was pretty good wording. It pretty much covers the basis. Now, when asked this way, only 11% of mainline Protestants said that abortion should be illegal in all cases, and... 19% of Roman Catholics and 35% of white evangelicals responding the same. Now, think about that last statistic. That one really surprised me. It said that only 35% of white evangelicals, that's the most conservative group, only 35% of them believe that abortion should be illegal in all cases. Now, what these figures show to me is that Christians have gone soft as soon as the words rape, incense, incest, the life or the health of the mother are introduced. And it's not much better with the leadership in, in those um, uh, same churches. All the way back in 1973, the National Association of Evangelicals said that they were opposed to abortion, but they put a caveat. We're opposed to abortion except in the case of rape, incest, and where the life or health of the mother might be compromised. I didn't realize that about the National Association of Evangelicals. We're not talking about liberals here. We're talking about an organization that represents hundreds of, of evangelical churches and denominations. They said, with the exception of rape, incense, incest, and the life or health of the mother. What this shows to me is that the church is following culture and following it rather rapidly. That was back in 1973, the same year that Roe v. Wade uh, came out. Their 2010 stance on abortion, just go on the web and read the National Association of Evangelicals' 2000 stance. It has so many weasel words in there that you could interpret it a lot of different directions, and it almost sounds like pro-abortion people who want to make abortion rare. In fact, in that same article, they said that they are collaborating with the pro-aborts in order to make abortion more rare through education and through contraception. What's with that? Uh, To me, it's just uh, it's a horrible kind of a situation. It's not the problem with the culture there. The church itself is failing to be salt and light. This is a no salt and no light present kind of a problem. Now, the picture is actually a lot worse than that. If it was just on that one subject, it would be extremely troubling. But when you look at the church's perspective on family, divorce, sexuality, money, 
education, evolution, sociology, psychology, anthropology, feminism, history, cosmology, and numerous other areas, you get the sick, sick feeling that there is something wrong with the church. I mean, it's, it's very, very troubling. And I don't even need to bring up the statistics of the number of evangelical pastors who are involved in pornography. That just blew my mind. Or the number of people who think that, yeah, we're, we're, not a, we're opposed to homosexuality, but really, in the secular sphere, we ought to allow homosexuals to have, um, what do they call those, uh, civil unions. It's just astonishing how people are, are so loosey-goosey. Now, why am I giving you these horrible statistics? It is not to depress you. It is to convince you that we will not win this war until the church throws off the bad worldviews that have made winning this war impossible right from the very beginning. And I'm not exaggerating on this at all. It is faulty worldviews that uh, have led this church to not win the war. Their worldview is inadequate to give faith. It is inadequate to give hope. It is inadequate to give any solutions to the problems that are facing our nation. So it's inadequate to, to, to give the needed passion. Until the church sees reformation, we will not see this war. We cannot be single-issue people. There are some Christians out there who say, I only have time to be involved in one issue, and I'm going to be opposing abortion. We have been working at this since 1973. And brothers and sisters, we cannot be single-issue people. We've got to champion a consistent worldview uh, within the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Jude is a fabulous book in uncovering the faulty views that are within the church of Jesus Christ today. The church does not have a single-eyed slavery to the will of God that Jude had in verse 1 and that he expects the church to have. Uh, the church doesn't have a proper view of mercy, peace, or love that is mentioned in verse 2. And maybe this afternoon, if we're, we're hanging out together, we can discuss some of these things. Why do I say that? You might say, well, surely everybody believes that. Yeah, they mouth the words, but their definition of these things is totally different than the historic church has ever given. They don't have the earnest contending for the faith. In verse 3, that means fighting for the historic faith. And as a result... We get railroaded over. We're not fighting back when humanism comes into the church. We don't have the antithesis of verse 4, the belief in historical judgments, the use of imprecatory prayers, the commitment to church discipline, the hatred for sin, the, the faith that the church will win. You know, the last two verses, as far as I'm concerned, are a declaration that the church is going to win, but people do not believe that. They think that the Great Commission can never be fulfilled. And so what do they do? They say, our options are closed as far as winning is concerned. So what is the only option before us? It's to choose the lesser of two evils. So they're constantly choosing evil. And I believe that we must be pressing other Christians, our friends, the people who read our blogs, we need to be pressing them into a more consistent Christian worldview. We need to be uh, seeking to bring... Uh, people into understanding culture from a biblical perspective. By the way, this is one of the reasons I'm very, very thankful to you guys for allowing me to be involved in biblical blueprints, because that's one of the passions that I've had is to bring right from the time that I became reformed way back in, let's see, when was that? Uh, 
late 70s or early 80s, I've had a passion to bring reformation to the church and transformation to culture. And this is what Biblical Blueprints is about. And so thank you for, for enabling me to, to, to be about that and, and, and try to be training leaders. Back in October, I talked briefly on seven approaches that Christians have taken to culture. Now, I hope, and you can start memorizing them during this, this sermon, but I hope if anybody from here on in asks you, what are the different approaches that Christians have taken to culture, you'll be able to rattle them off very, very quickly, right off the top of your head. We're going to go through uh, these approaches, but the true approach has always been present in the church. Sometimes it's dominated the church, other times it has been a more of a minority. It's always been present, but any time... Any one of those other six views of the church has been dominating the church. It has been disastrous. It's destroyed the church and it's destroyed culture. Anytime the Reformed view has been present and has dominated, it has brought prosperity, transformation, righteousness, all kinds of blessings to culture. And it's not just in America. You can certainly see it in the First Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. You can see it in the Puritan movement. You can see it uh, in Africa uh, during the 1800s. You can see it in India. And so this is not just a, a theoretical concept. If you study history, any time the church has dominated with the true view of culture, automatically, it seems, there has been blessing, prosperity, and the church has been victorious. This is not an inconsequential issue. This is at the heart of what is wrong on this, uh, uh, th- this abortion and pro-life uh, fight that we are engaging in in America. Okay, let's take a look at the first one. What did monks in monasteries do? They sought to escape, right? They sought to escape from culture. If you don't like abortion, then you go off into a monastery where you don't have to think about abortion, right? If you don't like abortion, you can hole up within your family and you don't have to think about abortion. There are some homeschoolers who are escapists. They don't want to deal with abortion. They don't want to deal with the things that are out there. They're in homeschooling for the wrong reasons. Now, I'm an advocate of homeschooling. Don't get me wrong. But they're in homeschooling for the wrong reasons. They are escapists. There are other people who hold up in the church because they don't want to think about all of the evils that are out there. And escaping from culture guarantees that the bad guys will win. We will never win the battle against abortion if we have an escapist mentality. So please, cross that viewpoint off of the list of your options and try to help other Christians to cross that viewpoint off of their list as well. The second view that was imported into the church was initially done by Greek and Roman philosophers who got converted to Christianity. And I think what was going on was that they had spent a lifetime trying to educate themselves in this Greek or this Roman philosophy. And when they got converted, it's like, man, I can't ditch all of these years of education. So they try to salvage it by mixing together the philosophy of the Greeks together with the Bible. Now, I mentioned back in October that the most famous of these mixers was Thomas Aquinas in the mid-1200s A.D. uh, He mixed the philosophy of Aristotle 
uh, the Greek that he really liked, and Aristotle's views on economics, on politics, on cosmology, on medicine, on all kinds of things together with the Bible, and he produced the monstrosity that we call the Roman Catholic Church, okay? It was a new religion that he developed in the mid-1200s, and that religion kept growing and growing and growing until at the time of the Reformation, the true church had to leave and uh, form uh, the, the Protestant church. The, the uh, Greek Orthodox church, they didn't like Aristotle, they liked Plato and Plotinus, and so they were mixing those philosophies uh, together. But we Protestants can do exactly the same thing. Back in the early 1900s, Christians were predominantly mixing modernism together with the Bible, and they came up with all kinds of weird things like believing in evolution and reinterpreting Genesis, right? And, and psychology and feminism and other things like that. Now that we're uh, the last part of the 1900s into the, the 2000s, We've had postmodernism, and so Christians have been mixing postmodernism together with the Bible, and it's produced the emergent church, and the evangelical church is fast becoming emergent in its ideas as well. Ultra tolerant of everything except for intolerance, right? So you're going to find how come these guys are never tolerant with me? Well, it's because you see black and white too much. That's why they're not tolerant of you. But um, uh, the, the church of Jesus Christ has the same idea of mixing things together. Let me just give you one example of, uh, of this. Back in 1984, InterVarsity Press published a book that tried to defend abortion from the Bible. InterVarsity. Okay, this is a big, well-known evangelical group. And, uh, and it was called Brave New People by D. Gareth Jones. Now, I believe he was just representing evangelicalism. If you talk to Denny Hartford, he'll tell you that there are many evangelicals, Christians, who get abortions. I think that's what's going on. Remember I said at the beginning of the sermon that it's only 35% of um, evangelicals who believe abortion is morally wrong in all cases. Figure for black evangelicals is lower. Now, why do I harp on this? is to illustrate the point that even on an obvious issue like abortion, Christians can become confused if they have adopted the, 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 the presuppositions of the world. And that's exactly what government education is all about. Government education is constantly filling the heads of our children with pagan presuppositions until they cannot think straight. They cannot think biblically without those, those uh, presuppositions being correct. And we're not going to be able to teach our kids a consistent worldview if we are not consistently, proactively educating them in our homeschooling. A lot of homeschooling is educating in paganism. They've just taken the same thing. They've put it into their homeschool. Classical education will not, I guarantee you, it will not give a consistently biblical worldview. Now, I'm not saying you can't read the classics. I've had my kids read the classics, but I've only done it after they have learned how to think with apologetics, how to think biblically. They understand their presuppositions. They know what the presuppositions of these pagan classics are. Then they can benefit from that. But I think too many people 
uh, do not consistently develop in their children a godly view. Okay, uh, here is one recommendation that I have. Some of you parents may not even know what a consistent uh, worldview is. And I would encourage you to go to the Nehemiah Institute on the web and take the peers test. Now, that's just an introductory test. You can order the paper full-scale peers test. Actually, uh, Rodney, can you do the full-scale one on the web, online? Yeah, it costs money. There's a freebie short one, but you can do it online if you pay money. Okay, but anyway, go to the Nehemiah Institute. That has been an eye-opener for so many people. The worldview... Uh, that people are scoring on, even in Christian schools, has been going downhill, downhill, downhill for the last, I don't know how many uh, decades. It's, it's just horrible state of affairs that we live in. So that could be a wake-up call. I need to start studying. And then you might take my little bibliography on worldview seriously and say, I better re- start reading these books. I better be able to have a Christian worldview that I'm passing on to my kids. Okay, so there's escape from culture. Second, there was a mixing of paganism and Christianity. The third approach to culture that you find in Christianity is the Lutheran two-kingdom theory. And Christians on this theory uh, say, okay, we paradoxically are living in both the secular kingdom, sacred kingdom, and uh, Melanchthon, for example, said that uh, the Scripture applies to the sacred kingdom of the church whereas natural law applies to the secular kingdom. Now, here's the problem. If you, uh, if you allow your natural law to be informed by the Scripture, uh, you're not going to be too far off. But virtually all natural law theory insulates natural law from the Scripture. They don't like the biblical laws. Even if they're Christians, they don't like the biblical laws and they get themselves in trouble because they're trying to press. There's a few things they try to insert in there, but they can't consistently do it. Uh, Let let me just give you an example. Go to the Natural Law Party. You may not have known there was a political party called the Natural Law Party, but there is. Go to the Natural Law Party's national website and you will discover they do not believe that abortion should be illegal. They believe in natural law, but abortion should be legal, okay? And uh, natural law is a rubber nose. You can turn it whichever way you will if you do not appeal to the infallible word of God. And this is one of the reasons. Even the Lutherans, who they were sneaking the Scripture back into natural law occasionally, but inconsistently, they still spoke of a secular secular kingdom. Why? Because they said God does not speak to that kingdom. They said, no. Everything is spoken to by the Scriptures. Uh, God's laws apply to absolutely every area of life. So cross that view off of your list and cross Westminster Theological Seminary in California off your list because they've recently adopted a radical, much more radical uh, two-kingdom theory than the Lutherans even did. The Lutherans at least snuck some Scripture in inconsistently. These guys are being much more consistent. And it's a shame that that's uh, crept into reform circles. Now, moving on, there's a fourth approach to culture that I like to term the ghetto counterculture. A radical version of this would be the Amish. In Christ's day, it was Phariseeism. And what they were doing is they were mixing tradition and the Bible. 
And they don't really interact that much with the world. Sure, they might drive their buggies on the world's streets. They might make furniture for the world. But there's not a whole lot of interaction. And so this is yet another example that guarantees that abortion will win. Why? They're not doing anything to oppose abortion. They're just hanging out in their ghetto. Now, I don't think any of you have been tempted to become Amish. (laughs) But I have run across Reformed people who have exactly that same kind of an attitude. Okay, fifth approach is similar. It is to ignore culture. This is what fundamentalists have done. Uh, You've probably heard the expression, why polish brass on a sinking ship? The world is sinking. It's hopeless to even fix it. Uh, All we're waiting for is the second coming of Christ. Don't be involved in abortion. Don't be involved in politics. That's polishing brass on a sinking ship. Save souls. That's all you should be involved in is saving souls. And it's not just dispensationalists who hold to this theory. I've run across amillennialists like Engelsma, you know, good guys who have somehow gotten the idea that it is hopeless to fix this world. Don't even try. And so they don't try to oppose uh, abortion which once again guarantees that abortion will triumph. The sixth approach is to adopt the culture wholesale. And this is what liberals have done. Uh, Liberal denominations, uh, they didn't used to be liberal, but they are now. The PCUSA, the Methodist Church, Episcopal Church, Disciples of Christ, United Church of Christ. There's other mainline liberal denominations. What what they've done is they've just said, we need to be like the culture. And so they're pro-abortion, pro-homosexual, There's other weird things that they hold to. Now, those six compromising approaches have kept the church from being able to see victory today that the church was able to see in many, many countries uh, over the last 2,000 years. We've forgotten what it even means to be a Christian nation. I've talked to a number of Christians, including Reformed Christians, who say that they don't even believe in the concept of a Christian nation. They're opposed to the concept of a Christian. And I'm saying, what? You're opposed to God being glorified by us following this? It's just, it just boggles my mind that people would think this way. But they do. They say that the, the Great Commission cannot be fulfilled. And so every time there's a fork in the road and you have an option of being a transformationalist, they don't choose it. See, Calvinism... The, the view of John Calvin was the view of the ma- majority of the church in the first 10 centuries. And that view is that Christ is the conqueror of culture. He is the Lord of culture. He is the King of kings and, and the Lord of lords. Everything in life must submit to him. In fact, um, I skipped over a quote earlier that I want to, to give to you that I think is a really uh, cool quote. It was from the theologian uh, Abraham Kuyper. Well, I can't find it. But, uh, oh yeah, here, here it is. It's the, the transformational view of, uh, of, of culture. This was the view of Athanasius. This is what enabled the church to take over Rome despite fiery persecution. This is the view, believe it or not, that saw that pressed for abortion to be outlawed in country after country before those countries were even Christian. They were doing everything they could to extend the righteousness of God. In those, and it was this kind of a faith that enabled that to happen. This is the, uh, the, the kind of view that gave amazing success to missionaries in the 1800s. 
It's called the transformational uh, view. Dutch theologian and politician Abraham Kuyper summarized this view when he said, quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's an excellent, excellent quote. When Reformed writers like Engelsma decry postmillennialism and call it heresy, they know full well that they are taking away a doctrine that can give hope and that can give faith to the church. When they oppose theonomy, they know full well that they are opposing the only realistic alternative to humanism, but they don't care because they don't believe it's even possible to have a Christian culture and, uh, or that the Bible allows for a Christian culture. And so they don't oppose abortion, and it's sad. It flies in the face of 2,000 years of history, and it is definitely not reformed. Do not let uh, people like uh, the people at Westminster or Engelsmar or others say that that is a reformed view of culture. It is not a reformed view of culture. And it really irritates me when these reformed people, uh, oh, well, we won't get into that. (laughs) Why was the church of the past so triumphant and the modern church is not? It's because the church of the past held, before even Calvin was born, held the Calvin's view, the transformational view. And uh, even before nations got converted in country after country, Christians worked hard and they saw abortion outlawed. In fact, uh, let me give you a book. It was a very, very encouraging book on why it was that they were successful in their pro-life ventures, whether it's rescuing babies or as opposing laws that uh, uh, were against women or against children. It's the book by George Grant called Third Time Around. Have you read that, uh, Dan? Third time around, wonderful book, amazing book. And uh, I think your kids would enjoy it because it's just filled with stories. It's just page after page of all kinds of stories of how God used ordinary men, women, and children who you would think they could not possibly win. They couldn't have any influence, and yet they did because they had the faith of this transformational view. They tried, and God blessed uh, their efforts. So I highly recommend that you read it. it was that kind of a Christianity that once again enabled the world to be turned upside down at the time of the Reformation. Now let's take a quick peek at verses 12 through 13 so I can share with you why modern humanists are no match for a vibrant Reformed Christianity. Okay, first is the phrase, these are spots in your love feasts. Now, if you insist on being pessimistic, you can say, okay, the church is so defiled by these spots. They're even taking communion with us. Uh, But if you want to be optimistic, you can say, well, (laughs) because Jude wrote this, the people were warned and they dealt with the problem. Okay, they were able to overcome that uh, problem. This is not a call to throw up your hands in despair. This is a call to identify the problem and deal with it. Now, in terms of power and influence, think of point number one this way. The only cultural power that humanists have in either the church or in society is the power to defile and to destroy. Okay? They cannot construct anything positive. They have nothing to contribute, and that the church would have the kind of vibrant Christianity that Jude describes, no one would even be attracted to the spots or to the stains. 
Now, the Greek word for translated spots here actually can be translated two different ways. Uh, in the New King James, it translates it as, as spot, and it's emphasizing a garment being destroyed. But it can also refer to underwater rocks that can destroy ships. And so there's a number of versions that translate this as uh, reefs or as shoals. And I'm not enough of a Greek scholar to be able to pick between the two. Maybe it seems like both are, are, are used. It doesn't matter. Uh, the, the same point is made. Humanism is crafted by Satan to tear down everything that God stands for. But once they've torn down everything, humanism becomes less and less attractive to those who are subject to it. I mean, who values a spot? Who values a reef? Nobody does. And so even though humanism has some fun things in it, it destroys. The second thing that we can say about point one is that reefs can be avoided by the ships if the ships are warned about it. And I believe that part of our ministry at Dominion Covenant Church is to warn other churches, not just our own church, but to warn other churches and other Christians about the reefs, the shoals uh, that are out there. And uh, I just pray God would enable us to be a blessing to the church by bringing reformation uh, to the church. Uh, One of my friends said it was after World War I that a philosopher of that day asked, after so much death and, death and suffering, how can we trust God any longer? The sad thing is that the worldly philosopher was asking the wrong question. Rather, the wise man should ask, after so much death and suffering, how can we continue trusting in man? Amen? I mean, this is, this is what makes us be living, really, in such encouraging and exciting times. When you look at economics, every humanistic economics has failed. <laughs> so you can tell people, well, you can try the biblical economics. You've never tried that. Okay, this is an economics that works. All of yours have been failures. Uh, when you look at politics, everything that politicians have tried has failed. Okay, and that leaves people open to saying, well, maybe we ought to consider biblical, uh, biblical politics. Education has failed. Psychology has failed. I talked to a, a psychologist who um, has actually ditched all of his training in psychology after reading Kilpatrick's book, and he said it just blew him out of the water that he had all of these years been using humanistic psychology. And he said as soon as he started using biblical counseling methods... He said, I had success like crazy. The success rate just was skyrocketing. Now, he said, I couldn't keep dragging things on for years, you know, in counseling, but I had so many clients, it, my business has just prospered like crazy. But anyway, that was just as a side note. People are more and more realizing that far from providing solutions, humanistic religionists have been spots and reefs. They are the problem. They are destroying our country. And more and more people on the web are uh, willing to give the Bible a try. So be encouraged. Second reason, uh, both non-religious and religious abortionists need not be feared, is that they are self-serving. Verse 12 says, serving only themselves. Now, they might claim that they're standing up for the rights of others, but they're self-serving. And humanism, all humanism, is selfish at its root, at its heart. Uh, you probably heard the story that hit the news uh, last week. Kathy was the one that uh, told me about it. This Australian couple in Victoria, they've gone to court to obtain the right to keep aborting babies until they can get a girl. It's, it's blatant 
uh, abortion for the sake of sex selection. So the only reason they're asking for abortion is they don't like the, the twin boys that were in there, it, 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 it was in her womb. Now, what I found fascinating is the secular media picked up on this and said, how selfish can that be? I think, well, all of it is selfish. But I want you to listen to this uh, satire that Stephen Lunn uh, wrote up this uh, past week. And he's the me, and then the obstetrician that he's supposedly talking to. Hello, doctor. As you know, I have three sons. We've decided to go for a fourth child, but only on certain conditions. Obstetrician, warily. Hmm. Yeah, you know, like that Victorian couple who had three boys and wanted a girl, so when their IVF treatment saw her become pregnant with twin boys, they aborted and started again. Now they've gone to the administration tribunal to win the right to select their child's sex via IVF. Obstetrician, eyes widening. Well, those were pretty unusual circumstances. The couple was extremely focused on adding a daughter to their family, and they had previously lost a newborn daughter, you know. Me. But... If they win, it will open the floodgates. And the fact is, by making their application, it shows you have the capacity to do it. My Honda dealer can customize my SUV. I can get my kitchen remodeled to incorporate a cappuccino maker, and I want you to make our number four to be just right. Obstetrician. Do you realize thousands of women undergo the often painful and emotionally draining IVF procedure and never manage to conceive? Just to get a pregnancy is considered a miracle for many couples. Me. Blah, 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 emotional blackmail. Bang on all you like about heading down a dangerous road when one gender starts to be more highly valued than the other. But ask Jerry Harvey. The customer is always right. It's just a matter of whether you have the expertise to provide what I'm willing to pay for. Obstetrician, extremely warily. Such as? Okay, for starters, how early can you test for IQ? Unless she's smart, I'm not interested. Obstetrician, loudly. Nurse! Me. Also, I want my daughter to be pretty, but not too pretty. I don't want her life defined by her looks, and I want her to be confident, but not boorish. Bookish, but not boring. And musical. Let's not forget musical. Surely that's not all. Of course not. I'm also hoping you can ginger up the sporty gene a bit. Maybe golf. I can see her making a living on the Asian tour in a couple of decades. You don't see any merit at all in the notion of life being a gift in itself and children being glorious uncertainties? Well, it's not really about them, is it? It's all about me. By the way, is there any way to make sure she's a saint supporter? And uh, so even though they're mocking a serious issue, it does highlight that even the secular people are beginning to realize, you know, this is not right. This is selfish. (laughs) This is really bad. It's all about me. It sometimes takes a while for people to realize how self-serving humanism is, but I think Americans are beginning to realize it more and more. Because humanists are self-serving, they're going to be fighting with others self-serving humanists, and from the Tower of Babel to the present, there is a long line of examples of humanistic conspiracies falling apart. And the reason? They serve only themselves. Now, in contrast, God's grace enables us to lay down our lives for our friends, to love our enemies, to have God-given graces that are world-conquering graces. Now, here's a scary thought. If you are doing nothing sacrificial to promote the cause of Christ, if you're only serving yourself, you do not have what it takes to reform the church or to transform culture. You are part of the problem. 
And so each of these points is not just an issue of saying, oh yeah, humanists are weak out there. If we see the weaknesses in ourselves, we need to repent of them. We must have the servant's heart of Jude in verse 1. Okay, the third description in verse 12, and we'll start moving a little bit quicker here, shows us that the empty promises of the humanists will eventually leave disillusionment in its wake. They are called clouds without water. The promise of a cloud is to bring rain for the crops, right? And humanism loves to make grandiose promises that it is impossible for them to deliver on. Planned Parenthood. For years, their mantra has been every child a wanted child. But it's been impossible for them to deliver on that. In fact, their whole philosophy has done the exact opposite. They're finding people don't want to have children, any children. And when they do have children, many times there's abuse. They don't like those children. Uh, Planned Parenthood has been making promises that they would make abortion rarer. They've not been able to deliver on that. Abortion has become more frequent. They have promised to make STDs rarer. And those have skyrocketed. They have not succeeded. They have promised that by providing abortions, it will enable families to pursue their American dream. And what's happened? There's been a skyrocketing increase of abuse, abandonment, divorce, and bondage. See, the world's way does not work on any level. And eventually their promises will bring disillusionment. And I think part of our job in the next few years could be to create a market for the biblical uh, answers by pointing out that every solution that the government has promised over the last 50 years has been a cloud of promise without the water of delivery. It is empty. When schools cannot deliver on their promises, what do they do? They don't promise to change anything. They just ask for more money, more money, more money. We failed. Can you give us more money? (laughs) You know, they cannot deliver. And so what we ought to do is say, you know, when there's been so many failures, you ought to ask yourself if the NEA is a cloud without water. They cannot deliver. They cannot produce. But we also need to point the finger at the church. When the church buys into humanistic solutions, it becomes a cloud without water. The fourth feature of humanism is that its constant change and vacillation will leave a yearning for absolutes. Verse 12 says that they are carried about by winds. Just moving this way and moving that way. Constant change. Why? Because there are no absolutes. There's nothing that can anchor them uh, uh, anchor them down. Obama promised change, and he's definitely delivered. And there are some people who don't like the change that he's brought, even though they voted for him. But here is the issue. God has made men to need absolutes. They might fight against absolutes. They might not like the absolutes of the Scriptures, but as soon as they start drifting and they don't have these absolutes, their heart yearning is there, and we can appeal to that heart yearning. God is preparing them, as it were. Now, unfortunately, the postmodern church doesn't preach absolutes. They want a gentler, kinder uh, Christianity that's without law, without judgment, without hell, without anything that's adversarial or disapproving. And as a result, they cannot provide the solution uh, to, to the world. The fifth weakness of humanism is that it can only live on the reputation of Christianity for so long. 
Verse 12, you know, our whole culture is operating on borrowed capital laid up by Christians from the past, haven't they? But verse 12 says, they are late autumn trees without fruit. Why do the mainline denominations like the, the Presbyterian, the Methodist, the American Baptist, uh, the Evangelical Luther, why do they continue to have influence? I believe it's because at one point they were godly churches. They did produce fruit. They have a reputation of being fruit trees, right? In part, it's because they still have money laid up from previous uh, faithful generations as well. But once the fruitfulness of the denominations begins to cease, over time, people will vote with their feet and they will leave. And let me just give you one example. PCUSA lost 46% of its membership from 1965 to 2005. Well, it's just been skyrocketing since then. I didn't bother to look up the statistics yesterday, but uh, there have been entire lots of churches been leaving since 2005. They're accelerating. So these are dying denominations. True Christianity will triumph. The liberal denominations will eventually die and rot. Now, I think that's in part why Jude calls them twice dead, which is the sixth description. They're dead in the sense of being beyond their fruit-bearing years. They're no longer bearing fruit. But they're secondly dead in the sense that they don't have any root. They don't have any root. And now, unfortunately, the evangelical church is going the way of the emerging church. They've rejected the inerrancy of Scripture. You'd be surprised at how many even so-called evangelical churches no longer believe in the inerrancy of Scripture or the sufficiency of Scripture. That means they are rootless. Rootless, without a root, the plant dies. So do not expect cultural changing life from any church that rejects the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and Sola Deo Gloria. The seventh description shows that God will eventually uproot these useless plants. He's done so many times in the past. He will do so once again. Actually, in Revelation 2, you know, the church of Ephesus, he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to pluck you up. Well, that's what he's saying here. He says, pulled up by the roots. Praise Jesus. I'm praying that these ungodly liberal denominations would be pulled up by the roots. I think that is a godly prayer to be asking of the Lord. I'm praying that Planned Parenthood would be pulled up by the roots. I'm praying that anything, whether it's liberal or conservative, that is not rooted in God would be pulled up by the roots. Verse 13 says, raging waves of the sea. Humanism can rage, and we're probably going to be seeing a whole lot more raging against the church in the next few years, and that's okay. That's okay with me, because what it does is it shows to these deluded Christians who think that these guys are friends, they're really not friends after all. The waves of humanism cannot go one inch beyond what God allows them to go. Even these raging winds are controlled by God. The waves of humanism have been raging against John Piper, Kevin Swanson, Peter Hammond, Al Mohler, maybe some of you, John Comstock. <laughs> They've been raging, you know. Anybody who wants to push back, oh, boy, you get in trouble. People will rage uh, against you. The waves of humanism have raged against Calvinism. I've seen people say, five points of Cal that's a cult. Like, what? <laughs> that was Protestantism. Even, even Luther was a five-point Calvinist. But anyway... He, uh, even though it was Calvin who learned from Luther, not the other way around. But 
Uh, they rage against Calvinism, post-millennialism, theonomy. Any other doctrine that gives hope and gives faith, they rage against it. And I think it's a demonic raging that goes on there. They do not want the church to have the answers to culture. And you're going to find even Christians who will rage against you. Some of it can be explained as demonic and some of it just flows from pride. You know, they don't have an answer uh, to your things. Well, then they just start attacking you as a person uh, rather than trying to deal uh, with your arguments. And this is why verse 13 goes on to describe foaming up their own shame. Humanism is shameful when it's given full reign. Okay, it is not something to be proud of. Humanism produced the atrocities of Stalin and Hitler and the Hutus in Rwanda. You know, at the end of those wars, there were a whole lot of people who were not only ashamed of their leaders that they had previously thought of as heroes, they were ashamed of themselves. They wondered, how was it possible for me to be involved in this kind of butchery? They could see the shame that was being brought up. Humanism produces the economic stagnation in Roman Catholic countries. It produces the totalitarianism of Islam. It produces the shameful things that are coming out of our government schools. It is precisely when humanism is strongest and can rage the most against Christianity that its shame is exposed the most. That's when everybody sees its dirty underwear. I mean, even this past week, pagans were aghast at the grisly business that uh, this abortionist in Philadelphia, uh, Dr. Kermit Gosnell, was involved in. You know, he's made millions doing a lot of late-term abortions. But sadly, they, they still are not appalled at the grisly nature of abortion itself, just that this guy is willing to cut up babies after they're born and they're breathing and uh, that he's killed some women in the process, apparently, or hurt, hurt, hurt some women. This guy definitely needs uh, the, the death penalty, as any abortionist does. But what has upset pagans here is his preoccupation with death, that he even has all of these jars with body parts that he has no use for. He likes to be surrounded by death. Okay, when pagans see the logical end consequences of their philosophy... They begin to realize that the waves foaming against Christianity are shameful, nothing to be proud of. Even the Democrats are not proud of our mayor right now. <laughs> Even the Democrats are not proud of the, some of the stuff that's coming out of Washington, D.C., because it's skeletons coming out of the closet. And, and, and they like a more sanitary approach where you keep all of the skeletons in the closet, but eventually they do come out. So when the PCUSA and when the Methodist Church has been foaming up their own shame by promoting abortion and homosexuality and the GLBT and other goddess worship and other things like that, people start to think, this is so gross, this is so disgusting, that they walk, they leave. And so this is not a time to despair. This is a time to set up a banner to which the elect can repair. Amen? These are not discouraging words. These are encouraging words. Now, there are two more descriptions which can give us hope to not grow weary in doing good. The tenth description is that they are wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, I take the wandering stars to be comets, not planets. Liberals like to say, ha, they thought that the planets wandered. No, 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 no. They understood uh, uh, the, the, 
the, the, the cosmos a whole lot better than the liberals give them credit for. These are, these are uh, comets that every once in a while will wander by and then disappear off into the darkness. And I think it's such a fitting, wonderful description of humanism. This speaks of the fact that even though humanism can attract a great deal of attention and even cause some awe and fear through the light that they produce, eventually they disappear out into the darkness of space. And uh, then men will return to the orderly arrangement that God created at, or, uh, at, at, uh, ordained at creation. Humanism is not the norm for human history. It is an aberration. It is a comet. It is a wandering star. Comets are not the norm for human history. There are times and eras when God allows for them, but this speaks of the permanence of true Christianity and the temporary nature of apostasy. And that ought to be encouraging. The final thing that Jude points out is that all humanism comes under the judgment of Christ. And there are three aspects to this judgment. Historical judgments, the final judgment day, and the judgments we call down from heaven. We've already seen that Jude declares woe to them in history. Part of that woe came, you know, in the judgment God brought against Korah in the Old Testament, right? In other words, Jude is calling the curse of God upon these apostates so that they would be taken out in history. Jude calls us to ask imprecations against apostates who are seeking to destroy and subvert Christianity. He calls us to pray for judgments to fall upon abortionists. When the church wakes up and they begin to take Jude's admonition seriously, they begin to turn to the Old Testament Psalms and they say, okay, this is inspired scripture. When these things call for God's judgments, then maybe God will take us seriously and things will begin to turn around. May God curse them quickly. But secondly, Jude speaks not just of historical judgments, but also of a final day of judgment. Verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. Humanism is destined to lose in history. It is also destined to lose at the end of history because all of history is headed toward the final goal of Christ triumphing over everything. 1 Corinthians 15 says he has to remain at the right hand of God until all enemies are put under his feet. The last enemy to be put under his feet is death. That happens as he's coming back, which implies logically every other enemy has to be put under his feet before the second coming. In other words, there's hope. There's progress in history. This is what Isaiah says. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. It is increasing. It is increasing throughout this whole era. And so here are my concluding thoughts. We should oppose abortion in every way that we can, yes. As we are able, we can protest and pray imprecations at the abortion clinics, pray for their salvation. We can get involved in politics. We can write. We can help lawyers financially to sue abortion clinics over things that have happened, like happening in Philadelphia, to their clients. Not because we agree with the clients. You know, they should never have gotten that abortion, but because we are pitting Midianite against Hittite, Right? Uh, we're, we're letting them fight each other. We can support Christian candidates with a consistent, and I mean a consistent, worldview. Some of you might run for office. And so there's a lot of things we can do to promote abortion. But let's not forget that the reason we still have abortion in this city 
is because of a far worse problem within the church. It is the church that desperately needs reformation. The church, once again, needs to be convinced of the old-fashioned transformational approach to culture where all of the Bible applies to all of life. And they need to talk about it and blog about it and write letters to the editor in every way they can spread the news. I, I love the fact that, you know, Steve, Steve Anders, he keeps writing letters to his newspaper. We can be writing letters to our newspapers. There's no reason why we cannot do that. But when I saw the impact that Bojidar Marinov had in Bulgaria simply through blogging, it reminded me once afresh that the pen is mightier than the sword. It is a powerful tool. Think of what could happen if one-fifth of this congregation got blogs going on the web and started tackling the difficult, tough issues of this day, applying the Scripture to those blogs. God can use any one of those things. There, that blog could just be a, a t- statement of faith. Say, Lord, I can't change a thing apart from Your grace, but I'm doing this in faith that you will take these words and you will impact some person's life and maybe many people's lives through these blogs. I think incredible things could happen. In fact, right now, there are more people who are involved in this, in this uh, consistent worldview war, who are blogging, who are doing other things than 20 years ago. I'm very, very encouraged. And by God's grace, we can triumph, even as the early church triumphed, against all odds, and took over Rome. There is no reason for us to be discouraged if we realize that it's simply the expression of self-destroying nature of all humanism. Incremental compromise will not work. Incremental victory, yes, but not incremental compromise. We need to boldly confess the truth and by faith press forward the, the, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And though there is darkness out there, I pray that like those sheep around that campfire, we would fix our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith, fearing nothing that is in the darkness, but instead adding to the light and advancing the light of your kingdom irresistibly until all things are put under Christ's feet. Give us that faith, we pray. We pray that you would uh, outlaw abortion in our city, in our state, in our nation. I pray that you would raise up magistrates who could care less what the rest of the country thinks, but who would stop abortion, who would do everything in their power to arrest abortionists, uh, caring not uh, whether they can stay in office, but doing that which is right. I pray, Father, that we would abandon pragmatism. We would abandon all of the other humanistic approaches that uh, the Christian church so frequently lays hold of. We would put off the six approaches to culture that have just guaranteed our defeat. And we would embrace that transformational view that sees you and your son as king of kings and lord of lords, as the lord over culture, the transformer of culture, the victor uh, of culture. And we pray this in the strong name of your savior, your son, uh, your lord that you have placed over history, Jesus Christ. Amen.